Blog Talk Radio. That's right, Africa, the center of the world. We welcome you to another episode of Africa on the Moon, September 19, 2021. And our theme tonight will be a continuation of last week's program, which will be part two, sports, slavery, and liberation. That's right. We're going to talk about sports in relationship to slavery and liberation. So you want you to come and join in with us about Darlene at 323-679-0841. The agenda tonight we entails, one, we do a tribute and give our respect to someone that we lost or very important to the movement of humanity. And that special person was Chief Billy Red Wing Kayak. We will pay our respects to him as well as we will discuss what's going on in our world and the community, then it will be followed by our thing tonight, sports, slavery, and liberation. So sit back, relax. As always, we will speak truth to the powerless and the powerful and we encourage you to participate. So right now, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to start off with our tribute to our brother, Billy, Billy Chief Billy, Red Wing Kayak, who was a member of the American Indian Movement as well as a member of representative of the Piscataway Indian Nation. We have some individuals who have worked with them, and they will come and share their perspective on what his legacy meant to them. So right now, we're going to bring in Brother John Steinbach. He's going to briefly introduce himself, and he's going to leave his perspective on the legacy of Chief Kayak. Brother John, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, Brother Africa, and it's an honor to to be here. It's an honor to be uh, on the program with Professor Jason Corwin, who who I'm going to turn it over to in just a second. Uh, But I've known Jason since he was a very young man, and uh, he he and I have a lot of stories. So so we're here to honor Chief Billy Redwing Tyak. So I first met uh, Billy in the early 1980s, and it was around the issue of 
Big Mountain. And for those who are not familiar, uh, Big Mountain, the Black Mesa, was located on the uh, Navajo Indian Re Reservation, and uh, it was uh, part of the joint use area with the Hopi Nation. And because of greed for coal, uh, 10,000 traditional Navajos, traditional Dene, they call themselves, the people, were driven off their ancestral lands. And Billy was a main organizer along with uh, Brother Dr. Jawea. And that was when I first met Billy, probably in 1982 or 1983. And I met him. Uh, Catherine Smith was there, uh, a, a Dene elder was there, one of the leaders of the resistance, and we met at the Methodist building in D.C. And uh, out of that organizing came uh, a, a lot of uh, future organizing, uh, so including the American Indian Support Committee. And, and Billy was our spiritual advisor. Uh, he was a spiritual advisor for the Native American Inmate Support Project, which I've been part of for, for over 35 years. And uh, those, those are just two very small examples of the work that Billy did. So I, I want to start off with a short story and then turn it over to Jason. And, and this wasn't really a major uh, issue, but it was an important treaty rights issue. And it, it involved the Ojibwe Indian Nation in Wisconsin and uh, the treaty rights. So the, the Ojibwe Indians had treaty rights to be able to spear uh, walleyes. And so a, a group of white so-called sportsmen's groups uh, protested against uh, uh, Ojibwe treaty rights, and they got the Wisconsin Association of Counties to come on board. And so the National Association of Counties was having a meeting at the Hilton Hotel, Washington, D.C. So Chief Tyak uh, organized, we, we organized under Chief Tyak's leadership, a protest outside of the National Association of Counties. And we had a very large drum, and Chief Tyak and Brother Dr. Juwea took that drum and led a procession, banging the tr uh, drum very loudly, entered the hotel, entered the conference, sang uh, the AIM Freedom Song and made an appeal to the National Association of Counties to support uh, Indian treaty rights. And the result of it was that the Wisconsin Association of Counties got shot down and the, the National Association uh, reaffirmed uh, Ojibwe walleye fishing rights. So that's, that's a kind of a small story, but it encapsulates uh, the leadership of, of the chief. He, he really, you know, in a sense, was a glue that held us all, all together and had a profound influence on all of them. So I, I want to turn it over to Jason now. And Jason, if you could uh, take the ball and then throw it back to me when you when you want to. Okay. Well, first I'd I'd like to say meow iskano suaguego. That's a greeting in the Seneca language. It means I'm thankful that you all are well. And, and I'm thankful for this opportunity to get to talk about uh, one of my um, primary mentors in my life and um, a, a, a good friend, uh, a powerful elder, a remarkable man, uh, a, a leader of the finest and highest caliber. So 
Uh, my name is Jason Corwin. I'm a citizen of the Seneca Nation, and I am a professor at the brand new Department of Indigenous Studies at the University at Buffalo in Buffalo, New York. Um, I first met, I first heard Chief Tyak speak at an event uh, along with Dr. Julia um, when I was a teenager and over 30, 30 years ago. And um, those two men and inspired me and, and, and to a lifelong of um, service to uh, to indigenous peoples and and to really to to and to create alliances with uh, people from other communities that are uh, uh, oppressed and marginalized um, in in the world and so um, you know I, I you've heard us mention uh, Daka Juia more than once um, and and I think it was quite fitting that when when Chief Tayak was um, the the um, services and and the ceremony was held this past Tuesday upon his passing at the age of um, 85. That that was also the same day that was the 50th anniversary of the um, the end of the Attica Prison Rebellion. And for anyone that's familiar with that history, uh, which which I would think um, more than a few of your listeners would be that um, what emerged out of that at, after the state police retook the prison, um, that, that several people were charged with, with various offenses because a, a guard had been killed at one point in early on in the rebellion when, when a whole group of inmates um, broke down uh, a gate and, and tore down a gate. And... Kajuia, uh, then known by his English name as, as John Hill, was a young Mohawk, about 19 years old, from the streets of Buffalo, who who was uh, doing time on on a corner store robbery, and had just gotten transferred to Attica, which is closer to Buffalo than than Elmira Prison, which is where everyone in the state gets uh, sent to process first, and some people stay there, but most will get sent to other places. Um, so he had managed to get a transfer there, and long story short, he ended up getting convicted for the death of that prison guard, and there was a campaign to free him. He, he eventually had his sentence uh, commuted, and, and he came out uh, firing on all cylinders, you could say, and, and became very active. And so he and Chief Tyak um, teamed up and were, were um, collaborators and um, leaders together for for years and years, and that's when, as as a teenager, seeking to to um, get involved with supporting Leonard Peltier and supporting the issue at Big Mountain that was taking place there, and in, in um, the late '80s was when I became aware, um, and and first started. I think I w I was 18 years old, and and I in 1990, and I started going to. Chief Tyak's land called Tyak Territory in Southern Maryland. And, you know, what I want to say about Chief Tyak was, you know, he, he, he was first and foremost uh, uh, a husband, a family man. Um, he, he was uh, an entrepreneur who, who ran a business to support his family. 
and in in 1970 he became involved in the American Indian movement and with the with the Piscataway being the indigenous people of the Chesapeake area and and that what's now you know Washington DC and parts of Maryland um that <clears throat> that's their traditional territory so out of indigenous protocol when people would come from other nations and and come to Washington DC to redress grievances as as this movement began to pick up speed um and and so Billy was a young man at the time or and and his father was the chief of the Piscataway Nation and he brought the young aim uh folks to meet his father who who sussed them out and and said <clears throat> you know these these people are 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 legit and they're telling the truth and that set a whole trajectory for the rest of um Billy's life that would involve him um being being the point person in DC in in 1973 when the wounded knee occupation took place involved uh, all these other walks like the um the trail of self determination and um the trail of broken treaties and um the longest walk in 1978 these were all major events for the American Indian movement where where people caravaned and and walked across the country to DC to present um the 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 grievances and the needs for for change for native peoples and and chief turkey would uh welcome the elders there he would he would walk with the elders in the front and you know chief chief kayak um chief turkey kayak at that time in the 70s as he was aging and and getting ready to pass on to the spirit world in the late 70s made an agreement with the national park service to be buried at at a part of Piscataway land that had gotten subsumed into a national park and it's directly across from from where uh George Washington's home was across the river in Virginia um uh, speaking of slavery and you know they they um the federal government had wanted to preserve this land you know to um protect the view from over there and <clears throat> whatnot but um chief chief turkey kayak had given some of that land in to be cuz he wanted it to be protected but he said that he wanted to be buried there where cuz this was the burial grounds for their people um and when he passed the department of interior tried to renege on the agreement and billy kayak um organized and around the country and got a uh congressional act passed the first one to allow uh a native person to be buried in a created national park um and and significantly he did this um that not only secured that right for chief turkey but set a precedent for other native peoples having access to to sacred homelands that that the federal government tries to um to control as national parks you know there are many sacred sites to native peoples that that are 
in what are now uh, controlled by the Park Service. So that's something significant I want to point out. So um, Chief Turkey Tayak had, had to lay in a mausoleum um, for almost a year before that congressional act was finally passed and he could be buried there. And then uh, um, when he was finally laid to rest, then Billy was made the chief of the Piscataway Nation and <clears throat> continued to, to, like John was saying, continued to organize throughout the 80s, the 90s. Uh, and, and he had a vision that was hemispheric. He wasn't just concerned about Native people who were, uh, you know, dealing with the colonial power of the United States of America, not just those that are dealing with the, the state of Canada, but throughout the Americas from Alaska to Argentina and, and his home, his land there, Tayak territory was a hub for people um, from all around. And there, there were many um, people from, from different revolutionary African organizations uh, who, who came through there and who, um, participated in the ceremonies and who did political mm -hmm. organizing because Chief Kayak was a political strategist of the highest order, uh, and and that's I, I, I what I'd like to say about him. And and I'll close on saying that um, I I made a film about Chief Turkey Kayak back in it was released in 1999 and people can find it on YouTube. We put it out there on YouTube um, last year. It's called The Flickering Flame. The life and legacy of Chief Turkey Tayak, and so you, uh, a lot of the documentary are interviews with the family, including Chief Billy Tayak, um, and and you can learn more about that history in that story. But uh, he he was um, just one of the most stand-up people that you could ever mm -hmm. uh, meet, and and he was That's right. a tremendous influence on on my life and and impacted uh in such a positive way so many so many people's lives who are who are struggling for uh truth rights um freedom and justice so so let me just wrap things up because i know we got a full program uh, uh john steinbach here so uh back in the late 1970s uh billy billy and the american indian movement billy played a major role and his son mark uh, when a delegation of the AAPRP uh, and the American Indian Movement uh, made a trip to Libya, and knowing that when they came back they were all going to face charges, and, and they did, and uh, several of the AAPRP members and several of the American Indian Movement members, including Vernon Bellacourt, uh, ended up serving several months in prison for that trip. And then uh, in the 19, uh, late 80s, early 90s, it probably was, I was actually involved in helping to organize a uh, protest at Lafayette Park to uh, send off a delegation of American Indian Movement and AAPRP and several other revolutionary groups to Iraq in solidarity with the people of Iraq. So uh, Billy was in solidarity with oppressed people all over the world. They came and they visited him, and Billy uh, was uh, a true revolutionary brother who brought people together. So uh, we'll miss him very, very much. And again, Brother Africa, Brother Anthony, Brother Camo, uh, others, please uh, 
Thank you very much for giving us an opportunity to talk about our, our dear brother. Thank you. And we'd like to thank you both for your contribution to this particular segment of this program. We thank you. All right, listen, audience, this is Africa on the Move. All right, audience, this is Africa on the Move. We're going to allow some of our panelists to make a, maybe a statement as well as relates to our brother, Chief Billy Ray Wheelie Tide. You know, we are paying our respects to this brother. It's well-deserved. And Brother Anthony, in terms of his work, how would you best remember uh, Brother Kayak? Uh, I will best uh, remember uh, Chief Billy Wayne Kayak as a steadfast organizer and revolutionary who recognized the fact that uh, that the struggle of his people was related to the struggle of oppressed people around the world, and um, I, and the fact that he uh, he always supported uh, the uh, uh, the African uh, rev, uh, uh, revolutionary movement. And uh, and uh, drive for for Pan Africanism, and we in turn always recognize the fact that this land belongs to the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere, and uh, that we and that uh, and that we were born here uh, from Africa against our will, you know, for cheap labor. And and uh, and and uh, and uh, 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 you know other purposes, and also to steal our resources. And I think Billy uh, Chief Tyak uh, understood well the connection between the indigenous people's struggles and the struggle of other oppressed people around the world. And uh, that's what I most remember about him. And unfortunately, I never had a chance to meet him personally, but I did have a chance to hear him speak at several African Liberation Day commemorations. Thank you, Brother Ed and Brother Haki. Understanding that Brother Tayak represents American Indian movement as well as his getaway uh, in your nation. And we knew those movements had relationship to the movement of African, Pan-African movements. Are there any things you would like to maybe raise and share your condolences um, as we think about the life and the works of Brother Kayak? I think the parallels that, that can be drawn is, is, is quite simple. I think that namely is that we have a responsibility, a moral if not critical responsibility, to stand up to injustice. It seems to me it's quite evident that any time you don't stand up for injustice, inevitably what you get is more injustice. So Chief Tayak epitomizes the kind of effort that's needed in terms of bringing about some serious redress in terms of the systematic inequalities and injustice inflicted upon, you know, oppressed uh, people, you know, around the world. So his willingness to work with groups like the All African People's Revolutionary Party is indicative of his political understanding of the world. Uh, one of the things that, you know, we, we have to do is that Aside from the spiritual understanding in terms of the world that we live in, we have to understand the more pragmatic reality. That is, we have to understand the world in a political context 
in terms of bringing about some real, real change. Uh, so I think Chief Kayak epitomizes that, and for that alone, uh, you know, he represents something that's grand, something that's very, very great. And for that alone, he should be honored. I never got the opportunity to meet the brother, but clearly someone whose people have been decimated, in which his people have been decimated by the hands of some ruthless, uh, villainous uh, uh, groups of individuals. Uh, the fact, the fact against, in fact, all of this happened to his people, that he still stands strong is a testament to his strength. So clearly, uh, Brother uh, Chief Tayak uh, uh, has my, uh, my tremendous respect, uh, great, uh, my tremendous uh, respect, you know, for his, uh, his, 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 uh, his uh, uh, audaciousness, uh, his determination in terms of bringing about some redress in terms of his civil wrongs committed against indigenous populations here in America. Hey, Brother Haki, Brother Moses, are there anything that you would like to say in respect and honor, Brother Chief Billy? Yeah, um, I like to say um, I never met him, but I, you know, from hearing about his life, and and I think I might have saw him at the, uh, uh, all African People's Revolutionary Party GC event. Uh, but uh, you know, these, these are vanguards, vanguard of the movement. Uh, these people who are at the apex of the struggle, who are. Who who are paying attention to details and and uh, and and fighting the good cause, knowing that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and they're about about it. And and I in that same spirit, I I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, um, uh, brother. My goodness, um, Ramsey Clark, brother Ramsey Clark. He passed away this year, uh, this a few uh, a little, not that long ago, but uh, I, I would be remiss. He defended the um, the chief in, in court and stuff, and uh, and he defended this um, Saddam Hussein, and and um, he was another vanguard. Just just there's been some people who who have been like light. In the in the midst of darkness, and they they show us the way and the correct path to travel, and and these are two of the people who just recently passed, and I I give my condolences to them and their family, and uh, thank you for allowing me to say something. Okay, we're going to do Sister Eleanor. Hey, your response, Sister Eleanor. Anything you like to say in recognizing yes, the like- work contribution of Brother Sayat? I'd like to say thank you to uh, Chief Jimmy Red Wing Kayak for his great service for his people and for humanity and recognizing the importance of supporting and organizing with oppressed people throughout the nation and everywhere on the globe on Mother Earth. So uh, to his family, uh, to the family, uh, to his tribe, to the nation. They have my condolences and uh, my thoughts and prayers, as well as uh, the belated uh, Ramsey Clark. But uh, thank you so much. And I, I just tell you, the stories are wonderful and fascinating, and I'm sure I've seen uh, Chief Kayak speak at African Liberation Day in Malcolm X Park, 
and at ever other events, but I never had the honor of meeting him or any of his family. So, again, my condolences and thank you. Thank you, Sister Eldora. I'll go back to uh, Professor Brother Jason. I'll bring you back in. I'd like to ask you this question about Brother Kayak. You know, to me, if I had to, if I had to identify two words that would best describe his legacy, I would say resistance and dignity. Now, from your own experience, if you had to describe two words that would best typify Brother Kayak legacy, what would it be? What would those words be to you? Integrity and leadership. Okay. And when we talk about the indigenous people struggle and how they continue to resist um, the oppression that they have in Canada since over 500 years or more of Europeans coming to the Western Hemisphere, can you just briefly speak to us in terms of this normal? Many people think indigenous people have all died out and they are no more resistant um, um, to the oppression. What would you say to that that, that narrative, Professor? Well, from from day one, there's been resistance. Um, there's been uh, collaborators. There's been people who, who just um, sought to survive the best way that they could. And and so, you know, we 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 wouldn't be here alive today, and with with any of um, our our culture, uh, our language intact, as, as threatened as they are by um, the processes of, of colonialism and um, forced assimilation, um, like which is coming out more in the mainstream news nowadays about the the schools that. Um, Canada and the U.S. in particular ran called boarding schools or residential schools where, you know, the whole motto was uh, kill the Indian, save the man, and, and they, where um, the children were, were kidnapped from their families and indoctrinated uh, and, and, and brainwashed. And many and many of them died in these institutions. And so in the last several months, it's been a little more in the mainstream news um, in Canada and a little bit in the U.S. about um, how many, you know, they've used that, that uh, ground-penetrating radar to, to um, find all these unmarked graves, hundreds upon hundreds at some of these schools. Um, and, and so that's um, – but despite all, all these things, despite the fact that the Piscataway Nation was, was being an East Coast – nation was, was uh, felt the effects and, and the encounters with settlers very early on, going back, you know, 400 plus years ago. Um, and, and though reduced to a, a, a smaller population nowadays, the fact that um, they, they kept alive their sense of nationhood and, 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 and held on to traditions uh, I, I actually quoted Chief Tyatt when, when I wrote my first um, in memoriam uh, post about him on, on Facebook because uh, I went I went back to that movie that I made about his father and and um, and right at the end he said uh, he said I'm here to tell the United States government all these other immigrant governments of North Central and South America and I'm living proof of it 
that their policies of genocide failed and we're on our way back. And he said, um, and that's the legacy that Chief Turkey left us. And so I would say, too, you know, that that's the legacy that Chief Billy Red Wing Tayak also left us um, is, is that there's we, we he was as one of the other panelists said, he was part of the vanguard. Um, you know, he was of that time when 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 um, the Panthers and the Brown Berets, the Young Lords, the American Indian Movement, um, so many other groups were, were coming to the forefront and pushing for things. And so um, and pushing for change and making change happen. They were they were people not just of, of talk, but of action. And they got things done that that left a path for those of us coming behind them to to pick up and carry carry that towards that staff, um, that feather, however you you, you know you want to uh, make the metaphor, and and so it is thanks to the work of them and 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 many um, you know lesser known um, people that 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 were just very humble and did the work. Um, we have inherited a great legacy that, that we can carry forth and continue to um, push for um, better conditions in, in our communities and, and to, be, to be free from, from mental, political, social, and economic oppression. And, and certainly, that, you know, the beast hasn't gotten any easier and, and has more tools of control nowadays with technology than, than ever before. Uh, but that that spirit, that spark that that they lit, leaders like um, uh, Kwame Ture, you know, who I got to meet or, or as a teenager, and from the work that was being done between um, AIM and um, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, you know, the people that 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 lit that spark and and fought the good fight and and with integrity and leadership, uh, we have a lot to be thankful for their legacy. All right, Professor, we'd like to thank you to our listening audience for restoring a tribute, an acknowledgement of the transition of our beloved brother, William Augusto Tayat, better known as Chief Billy Tayat. He made a transition on September 6, 2021. What we're going to do right now, we're going to a revolutionary break. When we come back, we're going to introduce our political panelists and analysts for today's program. And then we're going to talk about, like always, what's going on in your world and the community. And you can call in at 323-679-0841 when we start discussing what's going on in your world and the community. We'll be right back. I'm Brother Africa, and this is Africa on the Move. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love. 
on a spiritual tip. So vast. So great. The African embrace. Live beyond. Love beyond. Your skin to where you belong.
lies that were spoken. Oh, the blood we have spilled. All the treaties that were broken. All the leaders you have stilled. Custer died for your sins. Custer died for your sins. Now a new day must begin. Custer died. Terminated for the myth you keep alive, for the land you confiscated, for our freedom you deprived. Are we free or are we slaves? 
Of course, many take the position that we're, that we're free. But ironically, when you talk about capitalism, you can't talk about total freedom for the people because capitalism doesn't recognize the freedom of every individual in society. So I read an interesting article in, about Slavelandia. It's a very interesting piece which pretty much encapsulates uh, the issues that humanity faces here in the context of North America. And I want to read a little bit about uh, I want to read this piece I wrote. Now, Slavelandia, coined by Gerald Salenti, is a dystopian world unfolding in the U.S., quite frankly, throughout the world, where a small group of wealthy people inflict pain and injustice toward a pliable population who has been conditioned to embrace their own suffering via the pervasiveness of propaganda. Slavelandia is no mere exaggeration, but the bedrock of capitalism that sees most of humanity as expandable. In the economic realm, U.S. economic policy foments deflation, not because it is the inevitable result of an economic cycle, but exists because the level of debt created to ensure access to capital by the oligarchs or the wealthy actually bankrupts the economy. Deflation, defined as dropping consumer demand or consumer spending, declining wages or joblessness, ultimately culminates in recession, which is precisely why media downplays the threat of recession, insisting jobs are plentiful, People, do not want, people simply do not want to work. Such a fallacious claim is buttressed by an equally absurd economic policy which says deflation can be com- combated by increasing even more quantity of money in circulation while reducing the federal funds rate. Now, the federal funds rate is the interest banks pay to one another for loans, in other words, to increase the amount of money in circulation. Federal funds rate, in conjunction with the Federal Reserve's purchase of U.S. bonds, are supposed to end deflation, but the reality is quite different. Currently, the Federal Reserve holds over $8.3 trillion in bonds. The Federal Reserve purchases $25 billion worth of government bonds a month. The reality is increasing the money, amount of money in circulation already exists, and despite increases of money in circulation, wages continue to decline. Job losses continue unabated, and homelessness continues to proliferate. So if increasing the money supply does not benefit, benefit 90% of the U.S. population, who does benefit? Simple, the oligarchs or the rentier class. Exercise monopoly control over economic and political affairs of the state, the oligopolists profit immensely while contributing little to society. Controlling over $41.52 trillion in wealth, 1% of the population maintaining economic status by gaming a system <coughs> receptive to rewarding the wealthy to the exclusion of all others. In fact, in order to ensure oligarchs have access to increasing amounts of capital, Janet Yellen, the current Treasury Secretary, is advocating increasing the debt ceiling, which currently stands at $28.43 trillion. The debt ceiling, philosophically, was created to impose spending discipline on Congress. Rather than eliminate tax loopholes for oligarchs or a return to an industrial policy by returning factories to the U.S., these ideas are rejected because oligarchs greatly benefit from tax policy and importing cheap goods from Asia to be sold at inflated prices. Instead, they rather extend the debt ceiling because it is the poor who inevitably will pick up the cost. While this infinity to reward the wealthy at the expense of the real economy started with the state councils in 1622, the practice of empowering wealth began in earnest in 1978 under Democratic presidential administration. According to Paul Krugman, in 1978, President Jimmy Carter changed the tax code to benefit wealth. According to the Great Diversion, President Carter reduced capital gains or taxes on assets that increase in value from 48 to 28%. Along with the Democratic-controlled Congress, political bureaus were erected to make creation, of, make creation of unions difficult and the elimination of consumer protection. The trend of enriching the welfare continued under subsequent presidents. Administrations of Reagan, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, to a lesser extent, 
old point that the benefits of tax cuts for the wealthy despite increases deficits and surging inequality in the United States. In the case of, of President Obama, he did increase capital gains taxes from 15 to 20% on incomes above $250,000 for those filing jointly. But the, the small tax increase was negated by itemized deduction, mortgage deductions, and the first sales of taxable assets, whereby value of assets would increase, and providing assets were not sold, ensured no taxes had to be paid. The more nefarious aspect of deferred taxes makes it legal to pass these assets to family without being taxed. Now, what makes the capitalist economic model structure detestable is the transfer of debt from the poorest in society to the wealthiest. This systematic transfer of wealth from the poor is concealed in economic policy that obscures an underlying system that sees poor people as superfluous or unimportant. Monetary policy, or the amount of money in circulation, is designed to bypass poor people and in the process ensure poverty becomes a real life for most people. By denying poor people access to money, their participation in the economy is impossible, which is the site of the plan. However, by making economies unattainable to the poor, the possibility of savings, which is vital to government investments, means the government's search for revenues for investments must be secured by foreign capital, which, con- which contributes to the current account balances, being negatively affected. The reality exacerbates poverty. Now, not only does it enhance poverty, it ensures poverty is generational. Now, the, discru- the exclusion of the poor from the real economy uh, when I talk about the real economy, I'm talking about the economy outside of Wall Street. It's riddled with irony. We know 90% of the money allocated by Congress to assist the poor never leave the banks. Banks use funds to close budget deficits or to pay shareholders dividends. Unfortunately, the shareholders who benefit from money allocated to the poor constitute the top 10% of wage earners, which, which owns 90% of all stocks, bonds, and mutual funds in the U.S. The transfer of funds in this case is not only blatant but legal. Capitalism does not see legalized stealing as a crime. This is done in plain sight without any response from elected officials. However, the legalized stealing does not does get more intricate or complex, despite the counterproductive results. According to Ludwig Schraub, quote, wealthy savings are largely unproductive, being remade by, being remade by the financial system into household and government debt, end quote. In other words, the state capture or the control of capital by oligarchs means domestic investments needed for a country to grow economically are denied. Instead of investing in the real economy, namely jobs, education, health, and housing, the oligarchs, the oligarchs who benefit from monetary policy, i.e. qualitative easing or printing of money, use this free money to purchase assets, housing, land, stocks, etc. These assets tend to increase in value under the guise higher asset price values would afford the government more tax revenue. Of course, higher tax revenues for the government never materialize because government tax policy provide loopholes necessary for the welfare to avoid taxes. The wealthy then use this increased wealth to purchase more assets at a flated cost, which is passed, passed to consumers, increasing their level of debt. Because the oligarchs pay little or nothing in taxes, government debt increases as a result of not having access to tax revenues from oligarchs, resulting in higher marginal tax rates for the poor. The cycle repeats itself over and over, resulting in a declining economy. The casualties of oligarchy hubris are cast aside and blamed for their own impoverishment. Under the current economic arrangement, these unproductive souls lack relevance and their struggles are trivialized by financial elites. In the eyes of financial elites, the routine brutality police inflict on the poor or the, sub- the systematic plans to ill-educate are only a small indication of poor people's status as slaves in the society. Because their lives resemble people who are enslaved and the process of creating the aforementioned is ongoing, don't fear. There is plenty of room for as slaves room at slave landing. The only requirement is blind obedience. And Brother Africa, I'll close with that.
Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Afton. Next, following Brother Afton, we now will go to Brother Moses. Welcome to Africa Move, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years. 1968. I call Marxism the race, the cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts, Brother Africa. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I say women hold up half the sky. Equal rights amendment, yes. ERA, yes. And I thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. It's just a matter of uniting the few, uh, uniting the many to defeat the lives of the few. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And we bring in Sister Eleanor. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Good evening, uh, Brother Africa. Good evening to our listening audience and fellow panelists. Uh, I am delighted to be with you. Thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this evening's show, and thank you all for listening. Uh, Brother Africa, I have a a drum here. It's a Native American drum, and if I can, I'd like to tap it a few times for a fallen revolutionary. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Okay, panelists, let's our listening audience. We're going to discuss what's going on in your world and community. If you'd like to join this segment, we actually call 323-679-0841, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Make sure you hit one. So right now, let's move forward. Come back to you, Brother Hackey. What's going on in your world and community? Yeah, brother. Africa Day. Uh, that opening was a bit long. I had un- I had intended on sh- making it considerably shorter, but uh, I didn't want to make it extremely uh, confusing. So I had to uh, had to uh, actually uh, spell out a lot of things I had intended not spelling out. But in any event, uh, you know, one of the things, brother Africa. You know, I'm, I'm always amazed at the level of ignorance of existing society. How can you talk about a technological society uh, like America and you got this pervasiveness of ignorance that exists among the populace? Is this a fluke? Is this something that's inherent, or is this the direct uh, result of systematic planning? My position is that ignorance is the direct result of systematic planning, and we have to understand it rather clearly. But having said that, Brother Africa, I want you to check this out. Now, the pervasiveness of ignorance in the West is no accident. It is by design. Ignorance is manufactured because of the strategic interests of the wealthy, both economically and politically. In order to understand the wealthy's inclination to advocate or reinforce ignorance, through the various institutions, we must first come to grips with a role of, the role of history. 
and the manipulation of history to advance political objectives. First of all, the notion of race is a political construct which has nothing to do with science. Geographic origin and early migration and anatomical model humans came out of Africa. On the genetic level, 17 different genetic strains are found only in Africa. This history was concealed by early Western scholars who were mandated to enhance the power of the states that validated conquest. In the book, Historians Against History by G.W. Nobles, a covenant was agreed upon in which African history would be eliminated from the historical record. Consequently, a precedent was established in which the denial of information could be very effective in consolidating power while solidifying control by the vested interests. This is why political figures like Fidel Castro, Muammar Gaddafi, and Hugo Chavez stand out as exceptional because of their willingness to tell the world they embrace their African origins and are proud of it. Because they embrace their Africanity, they understand the wisdom of one humanity working together to arrive at a new paradigm. In this regard, the furious notion some people are better than others is totally discredited, and in the process, exploitation loses its legitimacy. Now, in the context of the modern era, the mode of propaganda has become considerably more complex. Propaganda has moved away from simply denying information to its people, but now can implant specific ideas or values in the public consciousness. Utilizing bots, cyborgs, and automated accounts, the same message articulated differently can, can give legitimacy to its content, thereby greatly increasing the prospect the unconscious mind will accept the appointments of the message making the belief their own. A good example is the level of vitriol received from Trump supporters when Trump is criticized via social media. Apparently, Trump supporters, Trump supporters, uh, with probably some bots as well, view him as a leader truly committed, presumably, to his people. The reality is Trump's policies consistently favor the wealthy. The poor, re- poor only receive rhetorical rants about shithole countries like Africa, uh, the continent of Africa, murderer, rapists, Mexicans, or kung flu spreaders like the Chinese. But nothing by way of remotely addressing the economic challenges poor whites contend with in the age of neoliberalism. Despite the obvious, many view Trump as a savior. Now, the most despicable methodology employed by Priscilla Ingram is the notion of individual responsibility. Individual responsibility promotes the idea all problems are individual problems. For example, viewing unemployment as an individual problem, only institutions and individuals who profit from unemployment are conveniently eliminated from the equation, and the individual scapegoated as lazy or unproductive. In a system that values productivity or employing fewer people for the maximum level of, of labor, Employing people has never been a priority. This case in point, in, it's a gig economy where workers are classified as independent contractors under the arrangement of people, people able to be extracted without the benefits of adequate compensation. This arrangement conveniently disqualified people as workers but glorified entrepreneurs controlling their own fate. This practice speaks clearly to the indifference to labor and the lack of value placed on labor. Now, despite this structural reality, the ethos persists where Many, in fact, do believe unemployment is an individual defect. The persistent nature of, fall- of this fallacy endures because of the effectiveness of denying the public information. When I talk about denying information to the public, I am not simply speaking in a generic sense, but orchestrated ignorance perpetuated by economists who give the impression the availability, the availability of jobs without consideration of the state of the economy, corporate debt, or deinstitutionalization policy, or the hauling out of the U.S. economy. This conscious manipulation is further exposed by Congress refused to back policy specifically to provide jobs for the public. Cory Booker, a Democrat out of New Jersey, proposed plan to set up three, a three-year pilot pro- project by setting up 15 employment centers throughout the U.S. with high levels of unemployment. The bill likely will not pass because, according to economic lease, quote, because it will cannibalize the private sector and make economic 
economy less productive, end quote. Translation, providing jobs will make it impossible to exploit labor and make huge, and make huge profits. In other words, fewer workers equal more profit, especially at low pay. It should be noted, policy to ensure employment has been on the Congress books since 1946, and that act was called the Employment Act. Why is this not common knowledge among the populace? Obviously, vested interests are more focused on maintaining the fiction unemployment is a character defect and not systematic planning. Now, the media plan, the, <clears throat> the media plays an indispensable role in fomenting ignorance. Media makes possible to transfer propaganda into policy. The perfect example is Make America Great Again. While the historical connotations suggest the good old days were without problems, the more insidious aspect alludes to a time in which everyone knew their place in society. This perception legitimized corporate graft and greed under the premise whites would benefit exclusively. This ethos, consistent with Trump's values, was able to carry out policy and interest to the wealthy. The level of legitimacy afforded Trump by media made right-wing organizing considerably easier. By energizing the far right, Republican lawmakers considering re-election moved further to the right in lockstep, in lockstep steps, ensuring legislation pushing the country rightward. On yesterday, a rally, a second rally was held in Washington, D.C. in support of insurrectionists on January 6th. Would this rally impact public policy set by President Biden? There is precedent that suggests probably. Through 1917 to 1920, fear of communism prompted Woodrow, President Woodrow Wilson to heed the warnings of media that exaggerated immigrants' threats to the political order. Uh, President Wilson, who sought to build relationship between business and labor, culminated to culminate in peace, eventually gave, his media, gave in to media by supporting the Sedition Act of 1918, which curtailed free speech while spying on immigrants, labor unions, and progressives. This media tactic was so successful, it was employed during a second rare scare in 1950, where Senator Joseph McCarthy alleged communists were in the State Department. Media would elevate McCarthy's lies to front page. Even though the profit motive played a part in elevating McCarthy's lies, it did impact President Truman's domestic and international policy. The administration considerably more hawkish, tolerated dissent was now at a premium. The bottom line is this. Media manipulation sensitized deception by giving lies to legitimacy. Currently, critical race theory, teaching the historical truth, or movements fighting for equality are all under attack by the media. This is important to understand the implicit threat posed by any society that propagates lies as public policy. The onus clearly lies with the people to navigate a better world, but to be careful not to embrace news designed specifically to confuse. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. All right. Thank you, Brother Aki. Now, listen, audience, this is Africa on the Move, Brother Africa. We're going to be in the seat and we're going to take the heat. As we define it, we're going to stand behind it. We're going to take a revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the discussion on what's going on in your world and the community, and we invite you to come and join in by dialing 323-679-0841. When we come back, we leave it off with Brother Anthony. This is Africa. On the move. Hey, hey, hey. Man, what's up, man? Hey, brother, what's up? Oh, uh, hey, how you doing? Hey, Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some. 
question two what's going on what's going on brother Anthony what's going on in your world and the community welcome back to Africa and move uh actually uh several things uh but I'll um I'll narrow it down to a couple I think are of significance um I read um uh, I read an article last um uh, let's see about the uh, African Union uh, recently uh, granting of, uh, observer status to Zionist the state of Israel, but uh, denying uh, you know uh, similar consideration to Haiti, and 
and I think this is uh, this shows the death of uh, neocolonial domination of the AU uh, because um, Israel has never done anything for Africa. And uh, the only uh, the only uh, the only reason I can think of for even considering granting observer status to Israel is because of its proximity to Africa and the fact that it had that same status with the OAU. Again, uh, you know, reflecting uh, you know how how rampant uh, uh, neocolonialism is uh, at home now. And uh, whereas Haiti has contributed a great deal uh, to the African liberation struggle, as a matter of fact, to the uh, liberation struggle of several countries inside the Western Hemisphere, according to Simone Bolivar. And uh, so, uh, you know, I think this, uh, I think that is a, a, a significance. And just uh, uh, an indication of how racist uh, U.S. immigration policy continues to be, um, Haitians that are trying to immigrate to the U.S. have been turned back, even though they are uh, present in, in Mexico as well. And, uh, you know, so I think... Uh, so I think you know, uh, you know, uh, with the uh, uh, with the rally that took place uh, yesterday in D.C. Uh, supporting uh, Trump, and uh, you know, and also uh, you know, current U.S. immigration policy indicates that uh, U.S. domestic and foreign policy are two sides of the same coin. Thank you, Brother Anthony. From Brother Anthony to Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community, Brother Moses? Well, um, the main thing this week was the we need to end the blockade against Cuba. The United States has engaged in an economic and political warfare against Cuba for over 60 years now, and uh, we need uh, to change the laws and uh, in these blockades, um, um, meanwhile, um, I know Trump and his supporters, you know, as they say, it was maybe 450 at the most of them on, on in D.C. yesterday, um, uniting the right more or less, uh, same people, same cause, uh, um, I don't know. Those are the two main things I think right now it's on my mind. Uh, uh, um, there's so much going on in the world. It's, it's hard. It's very difficult. But uh, I think those are key things right now. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And we go to Sister Eleanor. What's going on in your world and the community? Well, the... Um pandemic continues to raise on Brother Africa, but most importantly, uh, before I get into that, I'd like to discuss what's happening with Mother Earth. Uh, everyone knows that we need to reduce our carbon footprint, but apparently 
the big three, uh, the United States, uh, India, and China, in addition to, I guess, and the EU have fallen short of their pledges. And uh, it's expected that the the temperature of the earth will rise 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit in the uh, next half century, which I can't imagine what it will be like in the northern hemisphere and 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 I guess the imperialists are all going to uh, buy up the southern hemisphere simply because we see the forest fires raging. They're raging now in Alaska, and uh, this is just a phenomena, a climatic phenomena that's happening all over the globe: flooding, rain, flash floods, fires. So when are we going to wake up and when are we going to change and when do we, I would ask every audience member to do what, do what they can to recycle, to reuse, to repurpose, to cut down on your carbon footprint. These, num- these plastics that are going into the ocean now are being consumed by the fish and we consume the fish. So we're harming not only the 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 animals of the world and the plants and the air, but we're harming ourselves. So we need to wake up and stand up. In addition, this coronavirus and its two variants, the Delta variant and the new variant spelled MU. Uh, are causing hospitals in the United States to have to postpone major procedures such as bone marrow transplants, open heart surgery, and cancer. Uh, Bone marrow treatments are major treatments for some form of cancer. And, you know, sometimes you have a small window of opportunity to receive these treatments, and it can make the difference in being cured or not being cured. It's like uh, I uh, some years ago I had an experience where a doctor had recommended certain activities, and it was something that was going to take 10 to 15 minutes a day where I wasn't able to do or perform those activities, and it had uh, a horrible impact on my health. And so I would say to everyone, please, Wear your mask. Wash your hands. This is not a political issue. This is a global health issue. And I would urge Moderna and Pfizer to make all their uh, vaccination information available to everyone on the globe who has the ability to produce this vaccine while this pandemic rages on. You can take control of your proprietary data after we bring this, us, Mother Earth, all nations, all people bring this pandemic under control. And uh, I also understand that this week uh, Russians will go to the poll. I want to see how they're going to react to the United States. Uh, Russian party 
are they going to vote them out of office because they're not handling the pandemic very well or addressing the issue of global warming. So uh, it's a time for real change. And I read in an article um, that uh, this thought of the booster shots isn't really viable because there's now some uh, problem with the production of the little vows because India produced most of them and we need these vows to be reusable and the production of reusable vows, not the disposable ones so that we can administer the vaccine. And I want to also say that I agree with Brother Hakeem. This is a period of we are enslaved. The people are enslaved, and it's much greater than wage slavery. We now have people in in all kinds of straits. Uh, if you can buy and own your land, you are in some ways safe. If you do not own your land, your housing, you know, your housing is vulnerable. Um, we we food prices are escalating. And we see so much uh, suffering in the world in day-to-day society. Um, I also agree with uh, uh, Brother Anthony in that I uh, I understand that the AU uh, they they suffer from some type of uh, the African Union is having a great struggle with uh, understanding what the sixth region. Means the sixth region of the African Union was to include the diaspora, and certainly the Haitians are a part of that diaspora. Uh, certainly, us in the Americas, all throughout the Americas Brazil, Belize, Honduras, uh, Panama uh, we are a part of the diaspora. So we hope that the consciousness of the AU will change. We hope to see the AU begin to organize itself to have parity in its bargaining with the imperialist powers. Uh, We can't let countries be picked off like Benin. It has only a a few million people with an annual GNP of $11 billion. That's less than some of these capitalists earn a year during, in this nation. So we, we, we really hope that the AU, uh, uh, as Brother Anthony said, will review its policies and improve its practices as a new organization based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The African Union should stand for a United States of Africa and 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 its diaspora, but the, they have a ways to go. And uh, I just hope that uh, people will, I've thought about this, and I know this vaccine is controversial, but I believe that if we do not vaccinate everyone, we're not going to save anyone. People in Africa want to have the vaccine, they want it to be administered, but right now there's a problem in that less than 4% of the continent has been vaccinated. And these deaths that we're seeing are traumatic. And this whole thing about genetic engineering and producing these pathogens that uh, 
can destroy certain segments of the population by doing DNA research needs to be capped. It needs to be outlawed. I'm sure it's outlawed, but we need to find an effective mechanism for making sure that this does not happen again. And we can do it if we work collectively as a people, not leave it up to the super imperialists, but for the people to do this. And I believe we can do it through uh, registering to vote and voting and making sure we run our people as candidates. If you're a socialist, run as a Democrat so you can get elected. You know, we can raise the consciousness of people because as uh, Brother Hakeem said, we are purposely miseducated. We are purposely undereducated. Now we have this new technology, and now we're receiving all this misinformation, uh, just, just propaganda that is confusing and dividing the people. But I believe if we start off by just dealing with our individual communities and the issues there, recycling, reducing our carbon footprint, and vaccinating the world, lifting the embargo, as Brother Moses said, against Cuba, it's too long. These people should not be denied. It's a form of genocide. We saw it in Iraq. We, we, we see these. This is ridiculous that we should deny people access to medical equipment deny a, 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 a diabetic access to insulin and to metformin, uh, someone with high blood pressure to have to die simply because they couldn't uh, receive the proper medication. So it's time for us to wake up, shake up the world, get Biden up on his heels. Everyone needs to write email. We have all this technology. Someone has to say something and do something. And uh, I believe that the people, together, organized, educated, and we start with our young, and we take it all the way through the grave. I believe right now the children who are 9 and 10 years old, in 10 years they will be our leaders. Now is the time to stand up and educate them as well as ourselves. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Panelists, I'd like for y'all to weigh in on this um, narrative. This past week, um, um, the President of the United States made a statement or a recommendation that he thanked that all federal workers are to get vaccinated, except Congress and those in the judiciary. Um, Department. Now, something seemed odd about this statement. What do y'all, what do y'all make of that particular that statement? Why there are certain exclusions of certain sectors of folks, but instead of others, they need it. Given the fact that the allegations that the virus is very deadly, and people need to have in order to take these shots in order to keep it from spreading. Brother Haki, what's your take on those kind of statements and narrative? 
Yeah, well, Brother Africa, before I, before I do that, let me just uh, to clarify something that I don't want um, to uh, internalize something that uh, perhaps was a slip of the tongue, but it's important that we clarify. I think Sister Eleanor, when she talked about a 2.7 2. Uh, uh, degree increase in terms of global warming, she was talking in terms of Celsius, not Fahrenheit. If we translate to Fahrenheit, it comes to close to 37 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's so. So I don't want, I don't want anybody to think that when, when Sister Eleanor was saying 2.7, they were thinking in terms of Fahrenheit because once it rises to 2.7, people would say, well, see, it's 2.7, nothing happens, so everything is okay. So there's clearly a distinction between um, Celsius and Fahrenheit. Second thing, the last time the UAE discussed Pan-Africanism was back in 2012. Uh, clearly, uh, Western design in terms of limiting or preventing the emergence of more progressive thinkers in Africa is working. Because the mere fact that since 2012, uh, Pan-Africanism hasn't been discussed means that the, the kind of people who are critical in terms of Western, Western interests are, in fact, in positions of power. And, but having said that, I think it's important also we recognize when we talk about Israel's involvement in terms of uh, in terms of status at the, at the AU, keep in mind, the way the AU is structured, uh, the executive committee has the unilateral power to unilaterally decide, you know, uh, policy. It's not the entire body making a decision. So I don't want to uh, bring, you know, paint all, you know, all African leadership with a broad brush, because that's simply not the situation. This is a situation where you have a corrupt individual, at a maximum three individuals, you know, who were corrupted, who, 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 who brought Israel on board. So that's, we should be very clear on that. Now to your question, Brother Africa, uh, what do I make of this, 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 this irony in terms of um, uh, COVID policy? Brother Africa, that's something fundamentally wrong. You see, if in fact you, if you're telling me that the that the virus is in fact um, uh, deprivation, then no one should be uh, immune. No one should be limited uh, in terms of their participation. The mere fact that you're saying that well, so, well as far as the judicial department is concerned, you guys are you exempt from taking the vaccine, but everybody else in the federal government, you got to take it. There's something fundamentally wrong with that picture. That doesn't make any sense to me, Brother Africa. That alone gives credence to people's doubts, you know, uh, as to the legitimacy of COVID-19 vaccine, and it's, and it's understandable. So for me, Brother Africa, this is clearly this is politics, but, but I think you have to ask yourself, what are the implications of this particular brand of politics? So if you're saying that some people are immune and other people are not, then what is that based upon? Is that based upon something that maybe the, the, the government understands that other people don't understand? But when you exempt the judicial department as somehow these people are somehow immune to the COVID virus, uh, there has to be some reason behind that. To me, there's no rational reason to exempt the judicial department you know, from receiving this shot if, in fact, you're telling me that COVID is pervasive. So clearly, Brother Africa, this is about politics, which lends credence to people claims that uh, there's something seriously wrong with, the, with the, the, the dissemination of these COVID vaccines, and I close with that. Thank you, Brother Hockey. Anthony, your take on the narrative. What you make of it? How do you interpret it? Uh, I concur with uh, Hockey's uh, points. Uh, I would add that uh, it seems as if that that if a disease is that contagious, then everybody should be vaccinated. There shouldn't be any exclusion, any exclusions whatsoever. Not even on uh, on sectarian or religious grounds. The only the only exclusion should be based upon medical issues. Uh, you know, uh, you know, like health health care concerns, or, uh, or, or 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 what have you. 
but uh, but if the disease as is as per, per, pervasive as some officials claim, then uh, then uh, then that 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 then uh, then there shouldn't be any exclusions based upon someone's occupation. Definitely not, and I think it uh, and and I think it it it, it should be. Uh, it, it should be required of everybody unless there's a and unless there's a medical condition and I think the people that question uh uh you know the vaccinations uh you know they may that uh that, that they may have a valid point or or a valid concern and I think these exclusions strengthen that and also I would add that uh that there are people that are fully vaccinated that are getting uh, COVID-19. So uh, you know that uh, you, you, you know, so it it it, it 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 raises a few questions, definitely. Thank you, brother Evan, brother Moses. What do you think? Okay, ma'am, you- I was on mute. I was on mute. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm basically. I mean, I've been saying we we should all get vaccinated. I mean, that's scientific fact that you know it's, this is the way to handle this this situation. And uh, there's so many contradictions among the people though, with all these schools of thought and ideologies and class class interests uh, that people are confused and. Uh, for their rights, quote unquote, and all this crazy stuff. But, but yeah, I think it should be everybody should be vaccinated. I mean, if we had a scientific outlook, if everybody had a scientific outlook, it wouldn't even be an issue. But I, so I don't know. I, I think Cuba's doing a good job, um, and we, you know, the rest of everybody in the world needs to get vaccinated. It seems that's the issue, and um, we need equity and. Uh, Sharing and, and sharing and uh, everything, empathy and compassion, and uh, and everybody will get vaccinated. That's the only way. Thank you. And since I don't know, should there be any exclusion? What you make of this? Well, first, I'd like to thank Brother Hakeem for uh, correcting my. I gave the correct figures, but the uh, he's certainly right. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. I, I feel that it's very important that people are vaccinated. Um, the death toll on, on the planet is just phenomenal. Um, they say that uh, by December, an additional 250,000 in the EU. I haven't seen what they're saying uh, on my little COVID site for the U.S. And uh, this this is really interesting. What 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 exactly is going on? But the, it it's it's not a political issue. It's a health issue. I I think that uh, it's kind of like kids going to school. You know, you you can't go to school without your measles vaccine. You're, you 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 got to go. You may still get the chicken pox, but luckily, if you're vaccinated. You'll just have a bunch of sores. It won't be as bad as all of that. And right now we have like about 631,000 deaths in this country alone. So it really is time for us to vaccinate 
and uh, I I don't think it's a political issue. I agree with Brother Anthony and uh, the other panelists that uh, it's really uh, essential that we vaccinate. And but it's also essential that we social distance, that we wear our masks, that we wash our hands. Today I took a bus, a public transportation. The driver refused to wear a mask, so we're protecting him wearing ours. However, he's not protecting us by not wearing his. So this is definitely not a political issue, and this speaks to this misinformation that people receive through social media. I saw a gentleman walking down the street talking about he couldn't breathe with a mask on, so he was holding it in his hand. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Everyone's life should matter. Everyone's life does matter. It's up to us just to be to be humble and and just accept the fact that if we're going to stop this pandemic, we're going to have to take a collective approach to the vaccine. And I find it very interesting that many medical professionals and others have not taken the vaccine, and and they and we need to know why, and 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 why should the elite uh, be exempt? Our, our 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 legislative branch be exempt from the uh, vaccine when the executive branch Biden and Harrison have received their vaccine. What's going on? And the judicial branch is going to be exempt. Does that mean uh, that federal judges across the United States will not be vaccinated? No, I hope not. It's time to stop the suffering, and now it's gone much greater than the, the the virus itself, Brother Africa. So, yes, people need to get vaccinated. And uh, I, I, I understand the fear that people have. But uh, if, 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 if some have to do it as federal workers, all should have to do it as federal workers. It shouldn't be just the rank and file. Susanna Noah and panelists, y'all, you raise real interesting um, concerns in that if the medical association as, as, as a whole will not take the shot, how much deductive reasoning does one have to do to understand that this picture is not right? You have institution saying we're going to shoot you with the shot but we will not take it. Do you need any more evidence than that to know that something is not right about that picture? Something's definitely not right about Africa. Something's not right but we don't know. How do we get to the bottom of it who can help us? Maybe uh, leaders like yourself and Brother Akeem, Brother Anthony, uh, Brother Moses can do greater research and bring it to our audience attention. But it is concerning that medical professionals are refusing uh, to take the vaccine. 
and it talks about, you know, I realize being an attorney and being a doctor, you know, you're above other people in society, allegedly. But uh, it's at a point where in the state of Louisiana, some medical procedures can't be performed because the patient is at great risk in the operating room with the unvaccinated medical professionals. So, yeah, I wonder why. Why wouldn't they? And, and, and it speaks to the power that big pharma has, the pharmaceuticals have, that you can go to medical school in this country and have one course in nutrition, become a practicing doctor, and not know much about the, the medicines and the chemicals that you are administering to others and that the medical profession has a fear. This, this, but that doesn't eliminate the fact that 4 million people are dead, 4 million plus on planet Earth that we know of from the coronavirus. So we need to do something. But it is questionable. But I, I feel that the AstraZeneca had had serious problems in Europe, but that the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine here in the United States state seemed a little more uh, uh, successful, meaning we didn't have the problem with the blood clots and the other things that uh, apparently uh, that was reported uh, in Europe with the AstraZeneca uh, version. So, uh, and I don't know what's going on with the uh, the vaccine in Cuba, other than that they had developed it and that they had been trying to administer it to their citizens, but they were running short of uh, the hypodermics and other equipment for the administering uh, of the vaccine. Well, can I speak? Can I speak? Hello? Yeah, Hello? Go ahead, brother. Hello? Actually, yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. All right. Well, Oh, what Sister Eleanor's point, uh, she should she should be aware that uh, Russia's been doing a great deal along with China in terms of providing the materials that Russia uh, that uh, Cuba needs in terms of uh, dealing with this uh, COVID nineteen surge. So I think it's important to point that out. But one thing, Brother Africa, I think that in reference to your question, I think was very interesting is the timing of COVID nineteen. COVID nineteen came along at a time in which the economy is under great stress. That's very for me. The time is very very interesting. You know, in the past, yeah. you know, I talked a great deal. I talked a great deal about furin clevocyte, the strange enzyme that that finds itself on the uh, on the, um, the, the, the 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 strike protein of these of this virus. Now, remember, I was talking about the fact that this, the strike protein is actually responsible for actually penetrating its cell uh, has this furin clevocyte on it. Now, the, the scientists are very clear that the furin clevocyte comes from a laboratory process. Very, very clear on that point. So that's beyond dispute. Now, the mere fact that no one has yet to even talk about curing clevocyte in terms of enzyme, you know, uh, on the spike, spike protein, excuse me, spike protein, the mere fact that nobody talk about this, this, this enzyme on the spike protein uh, raises, for me, red flags in terms of there's something seriously wrong going on. And when you talk about the level of death that occurs, throughout, not just in the United States, throughout the world, it's very, very problematic. The Zionist regime of Israel is on its fourth, do- uh, fourth, fourth dose, dosage of COVID-19 vaccine. Israel has the highest level of COVID deaths, a reinfection of COVID in the world. How do you account for that? If, in fact, you're telling me that the succession of COVID shots 
are instrumental in preventing COVID-19, then how the hell do you explain that Israel is above, far beyond most nations in terms of dispensing COVID-19 vaccine, leads the world in terms of COVID-19 infection or reinfected, reinfection? How do you explain that? There's something seriously wrong. I maintain, Brother Africa, and this is just speculation, and I've been trying to find out. There's getting access to those documents to sort of verify or corroborate what I'm saying. It's going to be tough, but I'm committed to trying to find out precisely in terms of the, the factor as related to timing. Because one of the things is that, you know, when we talk about capitalism's decline, one thing we got to understand that these people in positions of power will do any and everything in terms of maintaining their power. They understand the system fundamentally that their, 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 their positions of power or rule of the world is over. They understand that. Forget about the Afghan, Afghan laws in Afghanistan. When you think about just in terms of economics, when you think about states like China, Russia, uh, Iran, little Cuba, when you talk about the emergence or, or if you the emergence of these, these countries, clearly they are threat, you know, to the capitalist world order. And so those people who practice neoliberalism, those people who benefit from the exploitation of humanity, understand that time is up. They're going to do whatever they got to do in order to maintain, order to maintain their their uh, their survival. So by infecting people with this COVID nineteen and showing lots and lots of people die from COVID-19, you ensure compliance. Because what, literally what they're doing is scaring the hell out of people. And that's all by design. Because all these fundamental questions that we raise in terms of the, all these deaths associated with this vaccine, all these inflictions associated with the vaccine, when you raise these questions, the media it acts as though these questions don't exist. But these are very pertinent questions that have to be answered if, in fact, you want people to take this, 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 this vaccine. Thus far, media has been resident or resistant to even deal with this question in terms of, you know, these, 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 these fundamental inadequacies when it comes to COVID-19 vaccine. So clearly, Brother Africa, there was something wrong. I'm not going to tell anybody to take that. It's up to them. If they want to take it, they take it. If they don't, they don't. But I'm not going to recommend anybody to take that stuff. It's up to them. They have to make a decision for themselves. The only thing I would say, research few and clever sites for yourself and find out what it's all about. And I close with that. You know, Brother Haki and panelists are talking to a pharmacist this week, this week based on her research, and she worked in the hospital, and she was talking to some other doctors. Based on that research, they've said all three of the vaccines really don't have anything as a part of its makeup to keep you from um, fighting against the uh, virus. They've said, in other words, the whole shit is a hoax. Yeah. I spoke to a I spoke to a brother up in Canada that went to a um I don't know what you call it, a young lady who she, she's a blood specialist. She's dealing with sales, analyzing sales and stuff. And they did a recent comparison between people who have taken these vaccines and those who are not in terms of studying that be their development of their blood cells and stuff. And this young lady who's a specialist in the area for over 30 years, has discovered that she has seen the destruction of, 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 of basic red cells in the human body. They have seen these cells function and act in a way that develops a kind of white substance that she's never seen before. And they don't know what it is. And no one is talking about it. But mm. she refused to take it. But she refused to take it because she said she has seen the differences between her her clients who have taken it, who have taken it, and those who have not. So you know, um, 
Could could this story does add up? Any other comments before we move forward, panelists? Yes. Go ahead, Brother Robert. I'm sorry. I didn't cut you off. Yeah, you know, there's, there's 90, over 90% of the patients that are in the hospital now with these new cases are people who haven't been vaccinated. It's becoming the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated in terms of the virus itself. And, um, you know, the chances of you getting it are, are slimmer and the chances of you surviving it if you do get it are better. And so, you know, that's the bottom line. But, Pete, y'all say I'm more Trump than Trump to me. But anyway, that's another story later on. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 uh, that raised a question in my mind. What is it that they know that uh, that 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 a lot of people outside of the medical field don't know? Because if you it, 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 you know uh, the thing that if this is uh, if this was so called uh, so, uh, is supposed to be so effective. You would think that medical personnel would be in the lead of uh, getting vaccinated, not tra- not not trailing behind. So that that raises a flag in my mind, because uh, you know you know people that study medicine, you know, generally know more about healthcare than than, than people outside those occupations. At least uh, formally, anyway. So that raises a flag in my mind about uh, about what it is what it is that they know about the the effectiveness of these vaccines that other people don't. And that's something the media should be raising, which they would if they were, you know, uh, you know, if they, uh, 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 you know, if they, uh, you know, if they were were, were really concerned. About uh, you know about why uh, uh, people in certain occupations like the medical field, law enforcement, uh, and certain other occupations in which there's a great deal of interaction with the general public are are, are opposed to uh, uh, you know getting vaccinated, and that's some of the things come to my mind. You know, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, right, well, brother Moses, the right, wing, the right well, wing has a way of getting in the situation. Like um, that's how Hitler came to power. His views became popular. Uh, brother Africa. Yes, I'm here. Yeah, let me let me let me respond to a brother brother Moses. <laughs> brother Moses, just for just for clarity, we we got to understand that. Uh, Trump lambasted the, the, the vaccine, but probably he took it. So that's the first thing. So we're, we're not like Trump. <laughs> so secondly, I think one of the things is that, you know, when we talk about, you know, uh, when Brother Moses talked about the fact that 90% of people who, who, who die haven't taken the vaccine, 
what is interesting is that a lot of people do actually develop a natural immunity. And scientists are very, very clear that their natural immunity to COVID-19 is more successful than the vaccine. That's ironic, don't you think? Also, one of the things when we talk about herd her, her, her immunity, remember, the CDC and World Health Organization changed the definition of herd uh, immunity. They begin to say herd immunity can only happen once people take the vaccine. But historically, herd immunity has nothing to do with taking vaccines. Herd immunity has everything to do with people adapt uh, the human be- human organism ability to adapt to to a to a to a to a, to a, to a, to a, a infect, infectious organism. So clearly, when they changed the definition of herd, herd immunity, there was some politics behind it. We got to understand that. I, I understand your concern, brother, uh, brother Moses. And I understand that you want to do what's right by people, and you want to empower, you want to help. That's fine. But at the same token, we got to understand that we're at war here. And because we are at war, we got to understand that a lot of the information that we're spoon-fed is not, not genuine. We got to understand that we can't go for the okie doke simply because they say so. We got to apply some critical thought in terms of, you know, why they say what they thought they're doing. And what is the logic behind it? If there's no logic behind it, then you've got to question it. And that's my only point. And I close with that. Yeah, we're we're not having we're not having a misunderstanding. See, that's the, that's the thing. We're not we understand each other perfectly. We just have different positions on this issue, and that and that's and that's the bottom line. Because um, because to me, it's you know, ninety-seven percent of the people in the hospital now are people who haven't been vaccinated. And everybody's talking about how they got immunity. What immunity? Where is it then? Don't believe the hype. Don't believe the hype. You know, for, for me, Brother Moses, and even since I don't know, I have a different perspective on this whole phenomenon. All of it is political. All of it is political. Even the timing of this so-called virus and its creation is political. Now, we look at connecting the dots. And the correlation to things, we know for the longest time there have been ongoing plans to try to find ways to lower the population, the human population on a global basis. We know that because rich, wealthy guys such as um, Bill Gates, Belinda Gates, and others, they have created an organization just to research and look into how to best to do that. So just looking at the time of this stuff is real, real, real interesting. And two, just because they said people who have not taken it are the ones who are getting it now, that doesn't make it true. We know they don't lie some of the time. They do what? They lie all the time. Why are you believing that hype? Why do you trust these same folks who, have, who has a long history of lying and deceiving people? Now, I can tell you one thing I have experienced by taking the shit, coming back from Venezuela. I was told by U.S. security personnel that in my body, upper chest, I have a large degree of metals in my body that has never happened to me before. That happened after one week after taking, well, actually, yeah, one week after taking these shots. How do you explain that? That is a phenomenon because they claim they've taken the mercury and these heavy metals out of these modern vaccines. So that's a, that is really phenomenal, Brother Africa. And uh, in addition, uh, I, I, I think about the vaccine at this point 
similar to the way I think of the uh, childhood inoculations. You know, the children receive the mumps, as I said earlier, mumps and, and the chicken pops and all of this vaccine prior to entering school. However, as you know, they still seem to come down with the mumps and the chicken pops. I, I can tell you, they come down with the mumps and the chicken pops and you're wiping the place down daily with Clorox to prevent the spreading. However, uh, the they don't suffer from encephalitis, swelling of the brain, and some of the severities uh, with these uh, measles and chicken pox that uh, existed before the vaccines. So it is really uh, a strange phenomenon. I know about death because of people uh, down south who were have known folks that have passed and then also in my community uh, early during the pandemic uh, one family had three persons lost within a 60 day period they were unvaccinated uh, they're still unvaccinated uh, and have had no deaths since the early uh, uh, beginning of the, the death that occurred in their family occurred in late 2020 and uh, uh, one young son in his 30s came down with it and passed another one passed and then the father passed all of the virus so I listened to some of the oral stories the oral histories that people are talking about the pandemic and I also uh, look at the uh, the uh, the app, uh, and according to the app, you're right. You don't know whether to believe it or not. It tells you that if you come in contact with anyone with the virus, it's going to let you know. I've never been notified of being in contact with anyone, and I I find that hard to believe also. And uh, unless you have the app on your phone, how would the how would you, how would anyone know whether or not you've been exposed or not? But how do we justify the the four and a half million deaths globally right now and rising as we speak? Uh, what 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 is the solution? And I think uh, when Brother Hakeem talked about talking to the hematologists and talking to some of these. Uh, Specialists, we need to do that because it is very interesting when this virus was released and we decided early in the game that we weren't going to point any fingers. We weren't going to point any fingers. And I understand China has been engaged in doing a lot of uh, population control research where they're trying to be able to attach a certain DNA and so that some will be affected while others won't. Why? And I'm sure, as uh, Brother Hakeem has brought to our attention, they're doing that in nearby Maryland. Why are us as humankind doing this kind of research? Didn't it die out with Hitler? Shouldn't it have stopped? And it is true that all of my life as an environmentalist, I uh, used to work in the, in, in, in the environmental sector uh, and and they had a group within uh, the building where I was called Zero Population Growth. Now, they didn't focus on zero population growth of Europeans, of white Americans. It seemed to be the zero population growth of black and brown and red people. I saw the cap 
clinics that were doing the sterilization back in the in the day of of black women. I know a woman that was attending Duke and went to what she thought was a campus clinic and came out sterilized. You know, she didn't know that she had had a uh, tubular ligation. So this is a very puzzling uh, uh, world pandemic. It came out once, came out quickly. At first, people like Bolsonaro and Moby and people in certain countries thought if it's only affecting the blacks, if it's only affecting the elderly, who cares? And they let it go. But look what's happened now. Nobody's expecting Panelists, my position is this thing is not in isolation to the rest of the oral um, narrative of uh, 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 us being involved in this warfare, this warfare against not only African people, but people in general who are, who are not in the position to control and dominate the wealthy. It's the wealthy that uh, control and dominate everything else. But when you look at the reality that it's real interesting if you do a study on dialysis, the people on dialysis, you'll find out that African people in this country make up less than 13% of the population. But we make up about close to, from my last research I saw, statistics I saw, we make up about 75 to 80% of people who take who's on dialysis. How do, how do we explain that phenomenon? 13% of the population we make up a 75, 80 percent of those on dialysis. Well, uh, there is some Let me finish this point. Number two, there's no discussion, but the reality is this: they said there's a large number of African women in prison who have been put in a position where they have been uh, operated on, and they no longer will be able to have children, have birth. And never done intentionally. So when they walk out of the prison, they will not have, will not be able to give birth. No one is is is, is talking about that. Who is talking about the hundreds of thousands of African women, children, girls that have gone missing in this country? We're not even talking about the rest of the world, and no one yep. knows nothing about that. How does that happen with all this technology? We talk about hundreds of thousands of a particular grouping of a people. And here we can come and sit down so we believe the stuff they're telling us. Give me a break. Take Brother it Africa, you, you know, uh, yes. you, 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 you make a, uh, you, you, a valid point. There are millions of people that die of starvation in the world every year. But there is no hue and cry over eliminating that problem. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, your point is, uh, you know, uh, your point is very clear. The media lies all the time. And also, and also there is also confusion and they, and they spread confusion by what they choose to emphasize or not emphasize, and I think, and 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 and, and I think that's critical because uh, uh, the uh, more people 
there are millions of people that uh, that 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 are dying from starvation every year. But there is no, and that goes unmentioned in in the in the, in the media for the most part, and that's because it's controlled by imperialist forces. And uh, you know, and the thing is, what uh, you, you know, there are uh, there are people that die beca- uh, from poverty because they uh, they don't have access to adequate health care or adequate food. Anthony, just to add to your point and giving that people something to think about. I don't know if they did any study, but there has been some observation about. The impact of this virus and it's, it's killing people. Seems like probably one of the first sectors of, of, of people that would uh, really be more susceptible to this virus would be the homeless. But there have been some discussion in terms of looking at the homeless in relationship to the impact of the virus. It seems not just be affecting them. How do you explain that? Mm. Well, well, it so is me, affecting them. Let me let it me. Oh, excuse me. Brother, let me weigh in real quickly. Um, one of the things I think, you know, uh, you're, you're right. When we talk about the Western medical model, we talk about making profits. Well, let's be clear on this. And so when you talk about the emergency of COVID-19, we got to understand something. Those pharmaceutical companies are making, I mean, hundreds of billions of dollars. It's always been the motivation. So we need to be very, very clear on that point. And so we have this information that's somehow disjointed, this information that makes no sense that's contradictory then we can understand that it really doesn't matter in the scheme of things because for them, all that matters is profit. And so, therefore, in that context, we understand when we get into the question in terms of geopolitics, maintaining domination of the control of the world, maintaining control of the world means money. So if they lose that opportunity, the ability to control the world, they lose money. And so they're going to fight most you know, vociferously in terms of making sure that, this, that, that, that uh, the, the powers like China, Russia, Iran, Cuba never come to power because they understand that that's fundamental means a reduction in profits. And for them, that is catastrophic. And we got to understand that. So when we talk about COVID-19, it's all about dollars and cents. Let's be very clear on this point. So Eleanor's, Eleanor, Sister Eleanor's point, historically, Sister Eleanor, mercury has always been used in medication, even for children's vaccines. But no one has ever been, no ever, when you, no one has ever been registered when you put a warrant on their body uh, 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 that uh, somehow that the, 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 the warrant measures uh, a metal that hasn't that hasn't happened. Even though we understand mercury is a form of, of a form of a metal, but in, historically, when they put them in those vaccines, when you put a warrant over somebody and you check them out, they didn't beep. In other words, uh, just in other words, this, 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 this metal that was in their body by virtue of mercury didn't beep. So we talk about an extremely high concentration of metals in the body in order for that warrant to go off and beep. So when Brother Africa talk about his experience in terms of in terms of you know the people putting you know checking him and find out he in particular in his chest area beep, you know constantly beeping, it speaks to a tremendous amount of, of, of metals in his body. Now keep in mind, Brother Africa is not the only person who had that problem. There was a doctor who also had patients in which she checked personally checked herself in terms she had a similar problem in terms of measuring you know metals in their body, and she actually went a step further by actually drawing blood and looking at blood. And, and, and coming to the conclusion that there's something formally wrong in terms of the amount of metal in the human body when these people take this COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, lastly, Brother Africa, you know, I, I wonder to what extent, you know, our physicians compensated. You know, historically, we understand that, you know, these, these pharmaceutical companies send their representatives around 
tell the, tell the, tell the doctor, if you use our product, we'll compensate you. We'll throw you a little bit of money, you know, for using our product. I'm just wondering to what extent our doctors compensated to push COVID-19 um, uh, vaccine. I'm just curious, but I'll close with that point. I think heavily, Brother Aki, and I say that by looking at the history of how pharmaceutical, how the pharmaceutical uh, uh, industry came to existence. They got a real interesting little documentary on YouTube about, I think it's, um, what's um, the oil guy, Rockefeller. I think it's the Rockefeller. When he create, uh, discovered oil and started making all this money in oil, and they changed, found out they could make byproducts for oil, pharmaceutical byproducts for oil. And at that point, they made it very illegal for doctors to practice any kind of holistic and natural medicine because they wanted to make money and everything would go in the area of pharmaceuticals. They flip-flopped the, the road. They had those holistic doctors to be viewed as not reliable, unfit witch doctors, and they were the witch doctors. They became the so-called real doctors by telling you, take all these damn synthetic um, pills that cause more side effects, more harm than good. So if you just even look at the history of how pharmaceuticals come and came to existence, you'll see the, 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 you know, the, 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 the trichology in this whole process. So it has a history. It's continued to, to flourish from its origin in terms of deceiving people when it comes to make, making medicine. Because you stated earlier, when you look at the whole growth development capitalism, the bottom line is about making money. You know, for everyone to get a shot, they get hundreds and hundreds of dollars. People come and ask you when you get your shot, do you have insurance? Why do you, why do you know do you have insurance? But they can pay big bucks for everyone who get a shot. And just like cancer. All these years I've been studying cancer, and someone can tell me they don't really know the solution to cure cancer. It's not to the injury to solve killing cancer, because it's a, it's a multi-trillion-dollar industry. Ain't nobody gonna stop that 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 train right now, because all these people who have made money making money off cancer. So anyway, we need to use our common sense to connect the dots. So we're just trying to get our people that's only something to think about. Anybody else have something else to say? Well, I, I, I think... Go ahead. Go I, ahead. I, I, uh, I definitely think that there's a lot to be examined. And, one, and everything that the, the analysts have discussed is so true. The most significant thing is that Big Pharma has taken over the medical school curriculum in the United States. What's more important is that uh, things like you mentioned about dialysis, it always puzzles me how we could be 12%, 13% of the population, but the largest number of dialysis patients, how we can be 12 or 13% of the, of the population, but in cities like New York, D.C. and other places, we're the 70% of the renters. How does this happen? <laughs> it's a type of um, planned <coughs> oppression. It is something that uh, we went from slavery to uh, reconstruction, from reconstruction where we were on the upswing because workers, no matter what their race or nationality, 
poor people knew they had mm-hmm. something in common. So we went to the mm-hmm. Senate and we went to Congress. From there came Jim Crow, and it was, quote, separate but equal, but never equal. Now where are we? We, we, we fill the prisons, the industrial prisons project. We're the slaves there. We're the frontline workers. What is going on? And it is a, a, a very interesting question. Um, at one point, I thought that the elite weren't being required to be vaccinated because of the conditions they lived in. They're not suffering from hunger. They're not from hunger. They're not suffering uh, from homelessness. I see. I've seen a homeless person dead on the street. So they're dying, but no one's documenting it. And 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 Brother Anthony is so right. Look what's happening right now in Yemen. Children dying as we speak. People starving to death in Namibia, in different parts of the world, starving, including this United States, and they have no voice. There is no one to speak up for them. The sick, the sick are disenfranchised. If you tell someone you're sick, you're going to find out who your friends are for real because the weak and spineless will disappear. But you'll find that there are always going to be stand-up people And one thing is right, Brother Anthony, Brother Hakeem, Brother Africa, is that, yes, world hunger is a serious problem. Forced sterilization of African women has been a historic problem in this country. We've seen it going on now for 40 years. Right now, the reproductive rights of women is not something guaranteed to all women. It's guaranteed to the elite. Because if you're a poor woman and you're on Medicaid, Medicare, or state health program, whatever state you're in, your abortion will not be paid for. Your birth control will not be paid for. So you're forced to bring a child to full term that the state will not even adequately feed. These SNAP benefits don't cover the cost of eating in America, and they have these people getting commodity foods. I didn't know what that was. I realized it's a bunch of surplus canned products that I think no one would eat or even feed their pets, but some are forced to eat it. So what's going on with this pandemic? I think it is political. I think it is economic. I think we need, we will eventually find out where it came from in Wuhan. We know the city it came from, but how? Were they working in a lab? You know that John Hopkins has a deal where they work with China. You know that China bought some of these DNA companies in this United States. What really is going on with these super imperialist nations? They're not quiet. Right now, the EU, the United States, and increasingly, China has a big imperialist footprint on the third world. So we still are in this struggle together. But we need to wonder and ask ourselves why Big Pharma was able to take over medical school and, and develop a curriculum of its own where they're just pushing drugs 
that, as everyone said, the side effects are so great, it's, it's unbelievable. What is going on? And what is going on? And doctors depend on big pharma kickbacks to make a living. Yeah, well, uh, what's going on is an intensification of capitalism. What happened was, to add to Brother Africa's uh, observation about what uh, John Rockefeller did, was uh, he monopolized uh, uh, the petroleum industry for a while. And uh, what scientists discovered was they could make synthetic drugs out of pharmaceutical, uh, out of uh, petroleum byproducts. As a matter of fact, that's what uh, that's what uh, ph- uh, ph- pharmaceuticals are. They're byproducts of uh, petroleum, and these chemicals replace the herbs and uh, plants that were used as medicine during the 19th century. And um, and as uh, Brother Aft correctly points out. Those were stigmatized as illegitimate uh, witch doctor, uh, you know, uh, witch doctor medicine and whatnot. And uh, but that was the medicine our ancestors took when they when, when they had things like a cold, uh, fever, or whatever. But they were they got replaced by these synthetic uh, pharmaceuticals, which are made from petroleum byproducts. And uh, and that makes up most of the medicine that uh, that's taken in the in the U.S. today. And in terms of why we suffer uh, from certain diseases more so than other groups, is a combination of the diet, uh, the occupations we're in, and what have you. Which is why, even though uh, even though we're maybe thirteen percent of the population, uh, in certain communities we make up a majority of the patients on dialysis. Because uh, that's because of uh, diabetes and other illnesses that affect the function of the kidney. And we suffer from, more so from those than other sectors of uh, the population. And, and uh, add, so what... Uh, to ahead. add to your point, Brother Anthony, and you can finish, I just want to say this, give people something to think about. I read some reports, they were saying, well, you have more people die from technique pharmaceuticals, you heard say, any other form, form of death. But even also... A lot of times people realize, particularly drugs that are dealing with um, pain relief, relieve pain, when you have a lot of pain, they give you these pills to take for pain. Mm-hmm. Those drugs play a key role in closing down your kidneys. This is why you lose your kidneys end up on dialysis. And don't tell our people, our patients that. And they know that. You know, that... You know that observation is an example of of the importance of being educated, and the fact that uh, that 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 there are people out here that are taking advantage of people's lack 
of knowledge. And so it's a it's a dangerous situation, but it's something that can be countered by uh, by people doing their own research. But you got to have the tools in order to to do that. One is being able to read and write, and uh, and and the thing about it though, and uh, generally poor people suffer more from lack of education than people that have more money. You know, so uh, so uh, so so that's a factor right there in terms of uh, uh, you know healthcare. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the less educated you are, the, more, the less knowledge you have about taking care of yourself, and the more vulnerable you are to being less misled by propaganda to try this sort of medicine and that sort of medicine and not, know, and, and not knowing a, a, a thing about the side effects. You know what? You know what? The, the bottom line is that let us let us you know um, let us not uh, dismiss the function of stress in terms of forming all kind of medical maladies that inflict, negatively infect our people. Uh, one of the things when we talk about stress, uh, you know, it literally not only affects how the brain functions, but actually actually literally affects the shape of the brain. So clearly, you know, those people in positions of power understand this fundamentally. So the so the so the issue for us as a people. It's to understand that stress does ultimately impact you know, our brain. It does have an adverse impact on our brain functioning. And so what we have to do as a people, we have to think in terms of how do we protect, at a very, at a very most basic level, how do we begin to protect our children? It's very, very simple. But in order for us to come to the realization that we have to create these institutions, these organizations to protect our children, we have to understand that in order for us to get to that level, we have to reject individualism. Right now, a lot of our people are very individualistic. They say, I care about my children. I don't give a damn about anybody else's child. And that's the way they will live through life. Uh, you know, uh, I know lots of people with that mindset. It really irritates the hell out of me when they, when they say that. But a lot of people come to the position that I only care about my children. I don't care about your children. And when I try to point out that what happens to other children impacts your child, you have an interest, a fundamental interest in terms of making sure that those issues that negatively impact those children are addressed because it affects your children if it's not addressed. But nonetheless, this question of individualism has to be addressed. And the problem is, let's, let's be very, very clear. You know, one of the things is that when we talk about in terms of role of education, Brother Anthony is absolutely correct. But the problem is that what is done is done. There are a lot of our brothers and sisters who are not educated. There are some brothers and sisters who are not educated who want to be educated. So if we could try to create those institutions to make sure that those who want to learn how to read and write, to create those institutions in the community, then those things are warranted. So that's certainly something we have to do. But more importantly, we have to innovate those kind of programs specifically to not only limit stress uh, for our children, but to make sure, you know, that our children get a, a strong self-concept in terms of who they are. It's something we can do. Don't tell me, don't tell me about racism. <laughs> don't tell me about black opportunity. Don't tell me about any of that stuff. I understand all that stuff exists. But we have the power, if we're willing, you know, if we're willing to do it, to actually transform the neighborhood, the community. We have to do it. We must do it. But it comes from fundamentally understanding that we are at war. And as it stands now, a lot of our people don't really understand they're at war. And so as a, con- so as a consequence, when we try to educate our people in terms of you're at war, it's rejected because they think that you're either crazy or you don't know what you're talking about. So clearly, Brother Africa, so when we talk about these melodies that 
when we're talking about the medical industry, the adverse impact on our people, then we got to, we we have to include stress. So we got the the, the, the pharmaceutical, then we got the stress, we and we got the conditions that exist in the community to foment that stress. So unless we as a people move to alleviate that those conditions, or to at least mitigate those conditions, then the bottom line is that those conditions will proliferate, which will continue to destroy our people. So we got work to be work to be work to be work to be done. But our people, first and foremost, must understand that they're at war. And if they don't understand we're at war, reaching such people are very, very difficult to, to do. And I'll close with that. Mm. You, you know, Pamela, and, and you are just... so correct. Well, I was just going to say, Brother Hakeem has spoken so much truth. We need to set up educational centers for our youth and our age because literacy <clears throat> is a big issue and uh, education. Uh, access to this technology. Um, so many people, for myself even, I'm a computer troglodyte. If you don't know and understand computers in today's world, you're cut off from a lot of data. You can read any book you like from the library on your computer if you know how to operate it. So there's so much in education to answer. And combating individualism is the biggest struggle I see amongst the working class because this, quote, middle class and others think that they've arrived or you find individuals thinking about their families, they'll drive their nephews, their the men in their family places, but they won't form a carpool to take a sick person that they've known all their life practically to the doctor or to church. So we have these backwards elements in our community that we have to combat. And often these people are disguised because you wouldn't think that they're so lumpen, but they are because it's what you do that makes a difference as much as what you say. So I appreciate all of your comments. You and while we were talking about the covert and this incident, the number of dead has gone up 37,000, according to this uh, app that I'm using. Mm. I don't know how often you know, they update it, but it's... You know, panelists, I want to make two quick observations for the remainder of tonight's program. Number one... There was a um, doctor who had a discussion with me around a question of the use of medicine. He stated that understanding the the, the strength of these pharma, pharmaceutical medicines, no one individual should take no more than two pills at any given time. Because anything more than two pills, the kidney not strong enough to fill it. <laughs> And that's what that's what break down your organs, and you also another reason why people have kidney failure. Now he said no more than two pills. My question to the listening world is that why is it that we have doctors now when they come to you, when you go to go to them, the first thing they ask you before they do anything is how many pills are you taking? And if you tell them not taking none, they look at you like something strange. Like why why not? Now, given the fact we 
this doctor said you shouldn't have no more than two pills at any one given time. They have a lot of their people taking five, six, seven, eight, ten, even with 15 damn pills a day. Yep. I had a friend who was on that regiment. He started doing the research, and one of the things she recognized that many of those pills were the same thing, but it was just called a different name. Hmm. So here you see this, they're using us as money tools. Everybody using the human body to make money off of. For example, these specializations of doctors. You had the eye doctor. You had the ear doctor. You had the arm doctor. You had the leg doctor. You have a doctor if you need something wrong with your stomach. All of these things is just another sophisticated form of using as a means to end and a tool to make money. That's one point. And my second point, panelists, I would like to show you all to respond to this because people must become more sophisticated to understand how the enemy speaks to the public and speak about us in codes, how they use certain words. For example, they're talking about this um this booster shot. Somebody made a decision or making a decision that we should start with the those who are sixty five older or those who are the most vulnerable. Listen to the word, the word those who are most vulnerable, those with high blood pressure and diabetes. What does that sound like to y'all? Sounds like us to me. Exactly. Uh, because we no, because we 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 suffer from diabetes and high blood pressure a great deal in our community. And one other point: What's that special um, special interest group um, project in New American Century? Yeah. Several years back. 10, 15 years ago, they said in that document, within 50 years or so, they're going to have Africa. They predict, they predict that Africa will become a land with no people. Now, what the heck do they mean by that? What are they communicating when they say Africa will be a land with no people? And how do you get rid of 1.4 billion people? Viruses, pandemics. And I, I want to clear up something because Brother Akeem brought it to my attention earlier. That death toll was not in the United States. That that 37,000 was worldwide, not not domestically. The the change in the number. So, Pamela, I'm just got to hear your response. When someone said 50 years from now, Africa will become a land with no people, how do you do that? What are they saying? What are they saying? Let's start with the people the most vulnerable, those who have diabetes and high blood pressure. What are they communicating to the rest of the world? First of all, first of all, all, you can't believe everything everybody says. I mean, man, where would we be if everybody... Robert, Robert, I'm saying they have a plan, agenda of objecting. This is what they want to happen. This come out their own... This comes from their own uh, meetings and, and documents and records. Why have meetings and records saying this is what we want to do if you don't have the intention of trying to do it, doing it, trying to do it? Well, I think, I think the thing that we have to do, 
when you talk about the project for a new American century, if we doubt the legitimacy of what, what, what Brother Africa is saying, I think what we have to do is we have to go and find as much as we can about the project for a new American century. Because this stuff is documented. It's not a secret. It's documented if you want to know. So you can always find out. Uh, but, but one thing interesting about Brother Africa, when you talk about you know, dog whistles, and when people, often when they talk to us, when they talk to each other, they talk in a way in which what they really mean is disguise. Uh, so when they say, uh, yeah, the most vulnerable, or when they say urban, or when they say, uh, when they say the, uh, uh, the, um, um, I forgot the term they use all the time when they talk about us. But in any event, it's often disguised. And, it, and, and when the dog whistles get pretty complex, they can actually talk about, uh, you know, our lack of intelligence in a way in which a lot of us don't even understand that they're saying that you lack intelligence. <laughs> you see? Because that's how sophisticated we get in terms of language. So we have to understand it. So for those Africans who believe that intelligence is limited based upon skin color, then that's something we have to categorically reject. We have to begin to understand that intelligence has nothing to do with skin color. As I alluded to earlier, when we talk about all you know, all human beings, it goes right back to Africa. So this notion, this privileged notion, that intelligence is based upon skin color, is absurd and stupid. It's important people understand that. So we, in order for us to understand these dog whistles, then we have to understand the language. So when they say things that are disingenuous or they say things that are fraudulent or they say things that are simply not correct, we'll be able to see through the dog whistle and understand that what they're really communicating. So this is important, particularly for our children, because a lot of times when they talk about policies that adversely affect the community, they talk about policies that adversely affect the children. It's all scientific. You've got to understand that these people move strategically, and, and, and for us, aware in terms of what they're actually saying, to me, strikes me as somehow unintelligent. But, you know, Brother Africa, when you talk about Africa, a land without people, it's very, very clear. What they were alluding to, the fact that, you know, there are many, many ways in terms of, you know, in terms of eliminating the population of Africa. Certainly you can do it medically. You can do it economically. There are a multitude of ways in which they can go about doing that. So when you talk about the hardships in front of Africa, they exist across the board. So when we talk about medicine, Africa is not allowed just in terms of Western investments, to innovate in terms of building hospitals. What the hell? Western, Western investments determine what goes on, what is built in Africa. The politicians go along with this program and, and go along with it simply because they want the money, and so they pay this game at the expense of their people. Now, now when you talk about, when, when you, when you, when you, when you talk about in, terms of, uh, in, terms of the, in terms of infrastructure, right, and you talk about the need in terms of having certain amount of infrastructure, particularly when you talk about uh, disposal, disposal of human waste, those kind of things. Well, if, in fact, you're mitigated against creating infrastructure because the Western investment simply won't allow for that, then it means that you're subjecting your people to all kinds of diseases. So clearly the question becomes, why the hell would anybody, why would any nation on this planet that's supposedly human subject another, another people to a condition which rendered them, uh, rendered them uh, susceptible to all kinds of bacteria and diseases. It all goes towards the elimination of that people. It's very, very clear. It's not, it's not rocket science. You don't have to think about it. They're doing it. They're doing it. And so when we talk about in terms of the, 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 the origin of, of viruses on Africa, when we talk about you know, Ebola, when we talk about those things like uh, uh, um, HIV, all those things, all those things that are concocted in laboratories, then we understand those things disproportionately impact Africa. The question is why do they disproportionately impact Africa? Because they want to depopulate Africa. And these fucking African leaders who sit around and go, go along with this crap because they're so damn corrupt and vile, you know, they, you know what? If I had the opportunity to line 
all of all all fifty all fifty all, you know all fifty four of them up in the line and smack them all because they need to be smacked because it clearly I mean this kind of this kind of atrocities that unfolding in Africa with the consent of African leaders has got to stop. It has to stop, you know. And, and then when you talk about terms of controlling your economic destiny, it's, 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 it's ironic. When you talk about currency that's related to Africa, African currency has no value. If you have no, if your currency has no value, how can you compete in international trade? You become a colony for the West. It's very simple. This is not mathematics. It's not calculus. It's mathematics. It's, it's, very, it's very, very clear. So clearly when you talk about depopulating Africa in 50 years of a land without people, that's not inconceivable. That's a fact. It's happening now. What the hell? What the hell? You know, you got a giant country, a giant country like Congo, which is relatively um, unpopulated right now. What, so what are you talking about? It's not a, an exaggeration. This is happening now. We got to wake the hell up and understand this is a war. And if this system doesn't give a damn about humanity, it doesn't. So doesn't a lot a of Africans don't Africa. understand we're at war right now. They well, don't understand struggle, that. That's the struggle, brother Anthony. That's the struggle. Africans must understand that war. These corrupt ass leaders who benefit financially from playing ball with the West got to be dealt with. They got to be dealt with. The people must understand the 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 the, 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 the interests are, are diametrically opposed to the interests of the masses of people in Africa and throughout the world. They got to understand right. that because they don't. After in fifty years, after we'll not only be depopulated, but Africa and Africa will be controlled by people who are not indigenous to Africa. That's happening Correct. right now. That's not that's not a speculation. That's real. Actually, uh, I see it. And the thing about it, though, and and the Zionists use the same argument to get control of Palestine. So it, it so it, 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 it you know what your uh, your points are incorrect, and the solution is that we have to teach our people the truth, our true history. We cannot start our history from 1619. We have to start our history, uh, uh, you know, as far back as we can go to show that we were intimately a part of human development. And that a substantial portion of that took place in Africa, including the class struggle, which we're which we're 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 a victim of right now. But uh, let's see. But uh, education becomes critical, and and the way you uh, you alleviate the stress that people suffer is that our true history has to be taught so that our youth have a positive esteem about themselves. I tell you, that becomes critical. To... <laughs> no, I'm sorry. All right, panelists, we've got you right now. We have to take a relative break. When we come back, we have to um, share our final thoughts for tonight. Today's program is part two of a three-part series, Forced Slavery and Liberation. We'll be right back. This is Power Africa from Africa on the Move. Brother 
in chains, living in pain. Today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yeah, to last through my journey. When we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Hello Reno. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, 
did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pelorinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. For more than 30 years, the Piscataway Indian Nation singers and dancers have been touring the world in an attempt to break stereotypes and educate others about the history of their people. Their leader and narrator, Mark Tyak, is the son of a 28th generation Piscataway chieftain. When his father passes, it will be his turn to lead his tribe. During a ceremonial war dance, James Edwards displays the American Indian virtue of mercy by not striking his target. Steve Conway demonstrated what is called a men's grass dance. These were often used by American Indians to flatten grassy plains before making camp. Here Eagle Boy Co. leads sophomore elementary education and engineering major Melissa Zichkowski in a rabbit dance, traditionally done by couples. Conway took the stage yet again to demonstrate a ring dance, an age-old tradition of forming shapes with rings, things like eagles, turtles, and the world. Co. performed an eagle dance, while Tayek explained the origin of the term Indian as it is used to describe Native Americans. The term came from Columbus, who, after being taken in by natives, affectionately dubbed them Indios, Spanish for In God. You will listen to a message about Billy, Chief Billy Red Wing Tayek. He made a transition on the 6th of September, 2021. We decided tonight to do a little tribute in his honor. So right now, what we're going to do is we're going to make our final closing statements tonight for with our political panel and analysts. This is part two of three-part series, Sports, Slavery, and Liberation. So we have just recently came out of a lively discussion. We're going to close out tonight by Dr. Moses leading us off with his final thoughts for tonight. Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. Uh, I'm into dialectical and historical materialism. Uh, as a revolutionary, that's my obligation, it's my duty, it's my ethic, you know, it's my values. And I have uh, integrity and I have, I have uh, a purpose. I mean, I have goals and objectives. And, um, and you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And so... You know, I'm, I, things don't just pop out of the sky. There's reasons behind everything, and uh, people fail to deal with reasons to get at the root root causes of things. They just feel like they can uh, say anything and do anything, and and uh, you just get over it and can move on. But anyway, um, I thank you for this nice show. It's been very interesting, uh, very progressive, hopefully, and. Um, Thank you. Have a good night. Good night to you, Brother Moses. This is Eleanor. Your final thoughts for tonight. 
again, I'm, I wish to wish my condolences to Brother Chief Kayak's family. And uh, I just want to say thank you for the work of the great nation. And uh, uh, I realized tonight I've carried this tom-tom with me throughout my life. It was given to me by a strong farming woman. She was the head of her farm in Virginia. And I got to, for a moment, for Chief Kayak. I may not know how, may not know where it came from, but I know who gave it to me. And with that, I just want to say, again, my condolences to Chief Kayak. And uh, uh, we need to stand together and and be united. And I am united with the people. And sometimes it, it may be a difficult struggle, but it's not going to end. And I appreciate your bringing up the topic of the vaccine and it's a, it's efficacy whether or not it's legitimate or not it's still open for discussion but I do hope that everyone everywhere is able to have vaccine access to the vaccine and that we look at what is happening in laboratories as we begin to do DNA research on how to manipulate a, a, a virus to affect some more than others by their ethnicity. So as Brother Hakeem said, this is a war, it's global, and we realize that with global warming, the global south is where everyone interested in investing in land and moving. So we need to stand united. And one thing Brother Anthony mentioned about the AU, the African Union, the nations did not have an opportunity, I understand, from uh, Brother P.L. O. Lamumba, that the brothers, the nations did not have an opportunity to vote on whether or not Israel or Haiti had status and that it was just uh, made by the, quote, leadership rather than being made by the nations itself. So we have to remember that each vote counts. And as Brother Hakeem said, he may need to smack them all, but that's all right. A little smack may wake you up sometimes. We just need to stand in unity above all else. And United, the AU, can have parity in global negotiation. Without unity, the, the imperialists of the world, which now include not only the United States and the EU, but increasingly China. So we need to make sure that the people are able to stand up against the super powerful, the imperialists of the world, and unite it the African Union will be able to have parity. I am quoting Brother P.L.O. Lamumba, and he said his name came from his parents who named him after a great revolutionary. So with that, I'd like to say thank you so much, and again, condolences to the great Chief's family, 
to all those in the world who are suffering his loss. May, may, may the love of us and the world be with you through this sad time. And, and I'm sorry for your great loss and the great loss to the planet. Thank you. Thank you, Sadella. Noah, Brother Haki, your final thoughts for the night. Yeah, yeah, first let me just clarify. When I say smack them all, I'm talking, uh, uh, you know, um, I'm not talking literally. I'm talking uh, symbolically. <laughs> so, so I know I got a little excited about that because the bottom line is that the kind of suffering in, in Africa is, 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 uh, is it's just unbelievable. And it doesn't have to oh. exist, but certainly we need a kind of revolutionary leadership to bring an end to the kind of suffering that Africa is uh, dealing with today. Oh, but my, my final statement, Brother Africa, is just very, very simple. If we want to know the, the, the axis of the problem, if we want to get down to the nitty-gritty in terms of what's going on and why, why it's going on, and economics is indispensable. We have to understand economics. When we talk in the context of you know, global capitalism or neoliberalism, we've got to understand that when we talk about the fact and we talk about economics, and we talk about the fact that 90% of, of, of the money that is fiat currency, so 90% of the fiat currency is currency that doesn't exist in reality. It exists on somebody's computer. Only 3% is actually hardcore cash. So when you look at those kind of numbers and you think about in terms of the, uh, the, the, the fiat currency, then clearly somebody or some people are in a position of power in terms of relegating who gets what. In that context, when you look at American society and you look at the disparity in terms of wealth, and you ask yourself, well, if the money's on the computer, then they can allocate the money to whoever they want, but they don't. So the question becomes, why is that disparity of wealth in the United States? So clearly someone, some group is making a decision who gets what and who doesn't receive anything. So given that context, then we have to understand that we have a, a, this, this, conf- this conflation of the have and the, the configuration of the have and the have-nots. And if you certainly part of the have-nots, as the African community typically is, then we got to understand that if there is a sense of powerlessness that goes along with that. And because we're talking about a sense of powerlessness, then what we have to understand is that the people in positions of power see us as such. What is important is that we begin to understand the power that we do have and that we're not as powerless as we are projected. But unless we come to understand the, the economic reality in terms of what's going on, we'll never come to the realization of just how powerful we are. So despite the kind of inadequacies, the kind of... Uh, systematic economic injustice that, the, that the inflicted upon the African community, we persist. And so given, that, so given that reality, in order to survive in such an onslaught, then the people who endure that got to be very powerful, very strong people. So we are very powerful people, so we have to understand that. But once we understand that, we have to build institutional organizations, you know, to protect our children. We have to do that. We don't have a choice. Uh, the, struggle, the struggle goes on. You know, we, we try to get people to understand the necessity of that. Oftentimes, it's very difficult for people to assess the relationship between, you know, sociological reality and how it impacts people. So when we talk about in, institutions in terms of how it impacts the way people behave, it's often difficult to get people to understand the institutions impact the way people behave. So conversely, if we're in a situation where our children are continuously told and by, by virtue of education, by virtue of the media, and so forth and so on, that somehow we're inadequate, then why is it we, it's hard for us to believe that our kids come to internalize this notion that they're inadequate? Then that gets reinforced by a community of adults who feel inadequate, and so therefore the kids look at the, community, at the adults 
who conclude that we must be inadequate, there's something wrong with us, because, look, the adults are, are, are somehow inadequate. So we got to change that paradigm, and the only way we can change that paradigm, we have to understand the role of economics. We ought to understand the role of history. We got to understand the role in terms of, you know, forming situations in the community, which, you know, education, uh, I mean, real education for our children become priority. We cannot wait for schools to do that. The people themselves must do that. It's a tough sale. But nonetheless, it has to happen. I can, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, we're in trouble and we have to understand it. But as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to unravel the matrix because one of the things, you know, we're very, very clear on, earlier we talked about the role of dog whistles. And so when you look at news and they, they implement these dog whistles in which they're actually talking about us, it's important that we understand precisely the implications of what they say. Because if we don't understand the implications of what they say, then, when, then, then what happens is that when they, when they move to, to, to realize that perception of us, we're not in a position to actually fight back. So we have to create those organizations in the community to combat these, these issues that we're confronted with. Having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. You do the same, Brother Hackey. Next, Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. Uh, certainly. I, uh, uh, first, I want to express my condolences on the transition of Chief Billy Redwayne Tyak uh, to his family. And also, I want to, uh, let's see, I want to close with a solution to the problem we've been discussing tonight, and that is Pan-Africanism. The total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. That is the ultimate solution to all the problems we're facing right now. And that can only be achieved through permanent mass organization. And that's what we're trying to build uh, as the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. And uh, you can find out more about our objective history and program by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And, uh, and we must study and share the knowledge that we have with each other in order to bring about the solution to the problems we're facing. Thank you, Brother Anthony. I'd like to thank all our political panel analysts, our special guests tonight, and of course you, our listening audience, for allowing us the opportunity to come to your homes this evening where we speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. This is part two of a three-part series, Sports, Slavery, and Liberation. We'll be on next Sunday, same time, same place. Please uh, spread the word. And remember, without organization, there's very little you can do. But with organization, all things are possible. So until next time, we can say good night. And if we had all the money in the world, this is what we would do with it.